and welcome to a very special update episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. I'm Scott Fuller. Of course, we know each other by now, and yeah, this is going to be a little bit different. Um, we just realized that we've done a lap around the sun, and the first episode of the show was in late July of 2019. We're, of course, now in the midsummer, late summer of the unfortunate year of 2020, as we all know. So we thought it would be a good idea to close the book and put on the shelf what we've done so far and call it season one of the podcast. And so what we'll do here today is go back through all of our episodes and all of our cases, tell some stories and just kind of off the cuff and make uh, observations or uh, maybe behind the scenes anecdotes about what it was like to produce each episode or the cases that were involved or anything like that. So that's what we're up to here today. I have a couple of thank yous uh, to make here at this point. I want to thank, uh, first and foremost, all of you for listening. Every episode, for subscribing in your favorite podcast player, catcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. The growth of the show has been amazing. And really, it was from the start for me. Nobody was really sure what to expect with this. Seemed like a cool idea conceptually. And then we just kind of went with it, and we got a lot of immediate feedback um, great feedback, much more than we were expecting. And then uh, it's grown since, and that's because of you. So um, I, I love the stories I get in the email from, I, I, I get such uh, vivid stories of people who are in their garden telling their neighbors, their poor neighbors about, about the show, imposing your, your uh, interests in Wyoming and true crime on your neighbors. I love it. I think that's awesome. The response and feedback I get from law enforcement across Wyoming is uh, endlessly amazing to me. That's fun, too. And everybody else who emails, comments, uh, whatever the case might be. So thank you for listening. I want to thank our Patreon supporters who support the show in the most tangible way possible. And I've got some good news for you guys. Um, we're going to do something similar to this, but just for you, right after I'm done recording this episode We'll open the open the line back up, and I'm going to record a Patreon-only episode for the first time. And without doing any clips that you'll hear in this show, we're just going to reflect a uh, stream of conscience, consciousness um, uh, on, on the year that's been. So that is coming up for you, Patreon supporters, as a thank you for supporting the show from the very beginning. Many of you from the very beginning, and uh, some of you in, in recent months as well. In, in the Really, you help make the show uh, possible every month because, as we all know, we've hit some hard times. And you're you're keeping the boat afloat. So I want to thank you for that. So Patreon people, you got some stuff coming. And if you can, if you're able, if you haven't joined the Patreon team community, feel free and, and do that. Um, it's $10 a month of support. And now that we're in this new studio that I'm about to tell you about, we're going to do a lot more content, audio, and I've got video on the way too which I'll tell you about here in a minute. Uh, if you haven't noticed already, I, I do, I don't want to draw attention to it, but I feel like I have to because I'm this guy. I'm a perfectionist in this way. You might notice I'm a little bit lispy. I'm a little bit more, I sound different than I usually do. And without going into the full history of my orthodontia, um, I, I've had since I was 13 implants of two teeth in my mouth. And I am missing that apparatus. It, I, it, uh, I had a, a bit of a dental emergency about two weeks, uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago now. 
And if you've been tapping your foot waiting for this episode to drop, it's partly because I've been waiting as long as I could because every day that goes by, my speech gets a little bit better. Basically, after for, for speaking in public and private, every word I've said for the last 30 years or 20 plus years of my life, your brain gets used to things being where they are in your mouth and your tongue goes to a certain place. But with that apparatus now gone that I've gotten used to, um, in the short term, I sound worse because the air is escaping from where that apparatus used to be. And if I focus, you know, I try to focus to enunciate and speak as you people do. Uh, and that's the good news is I now have full range of motion in my mouth, which I've never had my whole life. It's a impediment of sort of sorts that I've had to get used to for since I was a teenager. And so in the mid to long term, the good news is I'm going to sound even better. Um, once my very expensive and painful uh, procedures are all over with. But um, that's that, I'm very excited about that. And I'm, I'm already, if it weren't for this annoying lisp, um, I'm already enjoying probably 20% more range of motion in my mouth that I didn't have before because of my dental implants. So I feel very badly about the distraction that you're probably going to hear in my lispy S's. And if you didn't notice already, now you're just going to be listening for that, I know. But I felt like I had to say something in case you were wondering um, if you heard any kind of a difference. Got some Daffy Duck going on uh, this time. Hopefully, uh, very, very short term. It's been getting better every day as my brain becomes used to the way things are. And you kind of have to practice it, too. So if you see me walking around talking to myself... It's for other reasons than usual. Um, I'm sitting here in a brand new studio. Yeah, so my family and I recently moved. Unfortunately, it's not back to Wyoming or one of my other favorite western states. Still here in Minnesota, but we wanted some more space. And a prerequisite for our move was podcast space for myself. So I now have way more than I need. Um, got uh, sound dampening that are up on the walls. To paint you a picture, they are blue and uh, black. Uh, the squares that you see on TV or the movies all over. I've got a um, television set mounted behind me. I've got a brand new studio quality microphone. I love this mic. My lisp is especially annoying to me because I'm in love with this microphone that I have. Sound equipment in front of me, the desk. I have two windows that look out into my spacious wooded backyard. Um, as close to Wyoming as you can find in these parts of the country. And I've got my dogs always with me when I record. They just follow me down here. We have a Boxmation, which is a Dalmatian boxer mix. So it's got a boxer face, and she's got a Dalmatian body. And we also have a German Shepherd. But she is black, which is relatively rare. Usually they're the sable color, and then there are the albino. But we have the black German Shepherd. So two big dogs and... Another half of the room I have to fill up here. So uh, we've got microphones, a, a couch over here, a chair over here. We've got microphones on a table behind me if I ever want to do a Joe Rogan thing. Not the uh, not the uh, fighting. More so, more so the podcasting. But uh, yeah, so you'll get to see this, especially Patreon people will get to see this as we start doing video in the feed, in the Patreon feed because I owe you guys some extra content for 
all the support that you've given me over the years. With that, or over the last year, um, what we'll do here is we're just going to insert some clips. We're going to go back to all the episodes and all the cases. I counted 17 cases. And we obviously don't want to spend too much time on each one. But if something strikes me about the case or about what it was like to record the episode or whatever, I don't have any questions from the audience here because we didn't ask for any, but I'm just going to play the clips. So we'll take a walk down the last season and remind ourselves of what we've covered so far and all that good stuff, starting with the very first episode of the Dead and Gone in Wyoming podcast. Among the thank yous I have to make are to Will Hill at County 10 for... Um, for being constantly supportive of the podcast, for being very easy, um, how do I want to put this, uh, very easy on the talent. He's a very easy boss to work with because in this endeavor, he's my, you know, he's the guy. He's the guy that gets to make the calls. And uh, there have been some situations over the last year where he he could have um, made my life more difficult and didn't. Um, he's been right there with me the whole time. I also want to say thank you to Jared Anderson, who you're familiar with from County 10. Jared and I go back to our Wyoming radio days, and we were uh, the best man in each other's weddings. Um, We're both still married to fantastic people. We both married up, and we're both constantly worried that our wives will realize that fact, but so far they have not. We anchored them down pretty good with uh, kids, though. But Jared was the uh, brain father of uh, (laughs) the mother-father computer of the, um, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore, of the podcast. It was his idea uh, to come up with this. It was a great concept. So you got to, next time you see him or interact with Jared from County 10, say thank you to him for um, coming up with the idea as well. With the thank yous out of the way, let's go all the way back to July 29th of 2019, Diabolical and Damnable was the title of the episode. I remember reading that in the old newspaper account of the D. Blair murder, which is the very first case that we covered, because it was almost 100 years old. And in that old newspaper fashion, they said they described the murder of the young boy, D. Blair, as Diabolical and Damnable, which I immediately latched onto for the first title of the first episode. So here's a little bit from the first part of episode one, very first episode of the Dead and Gone podcast. Wheeler quickly realized that whatever was left of the boy's body, which had been exposed in that place apparently for three weeks, required him to immediately notify the authorities. And so he went back to town. Word spread quickly, and fearing that the body that was found about a mile outside of town was her son. Dee's mother arrived shortly after, and she was the one to identify her son's remains, based on the clothes that the body was wearing and a ring she knew to be her son's on one of the boy's hands. Due to the condition of the body, no immediate cause of death was determined, and this prompted the local coroner to write there and then on that very same day and panel a three-man grand jury, which examined the body and examined the immediate surroundings, but also could not determine a cause of death. The following Sunday, a funeral service was held for D. Blair, after which Mr. and Mrs. Ed Herberts buried a child for the second time in four months. D. Blair was laid to rest next to his sister at the local cemetery in Casper. On hearing the news that his brother had died back home, D.'s brother immediately returned from a trip to the Bighorn Mountains. When he arrived back in Casper, D.'s brother wanted to see the spot where his brother's body had been found. 
Dee's brother, his name was Amos, examined the spot and he was the one to find some human teeth and some hair and a patch of dried blood on the ground where the body was found. Also found in the lowlands nearby were a series of footprints, and to Dee's brother, the footprints appeared to tell the story of what had happened. It appeared as though Dee had been chased by more than one individual. A group of boys, possibly given the size of the prints, and as many as three with bare feet and one wearing shoes. So that was from the very first episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming, the first part. We have, we covered two cases per episode for a while, um, and then I got a little bit more focused in telling the deeper stories of one single case as we got into the more complicated stuff like the Vihar bombing and the Great Basin serial killer and all that uh, good stuff. But... Um, I wanted that very first case to be old um, for just anecdotal reasons of I wanted to try to integrate history into storytelling into even just a further context of not just the cases that we cover, but Wyoming itself. Because I, I love Wyoming. I love history. And the history of the West is really fascinating to me. And I incorporate, as you could probably tell, because I incorporate a lot of that in the episodes and just the narrative storytelling of the episodes. In that very first episode, it was kind of weird to realize how they investigated homicides, especially in Wyoming, a hundred years ago. Um, it was basically a posse that would go out once that, that boy's body was discovered. Well, first of all, he would go fishing from his cabin away from his home for a night or two, you know, just by himself. He was about eight, if I remember right impossible to happen. Now, he could probably be prosecuted for allowing your eight-year-old to go into the Wyoming mountains for two nights by himself. But that's how different things were then. You know, he'll be back on Thursday kind of thing. And when he wasn't back, they went looking for him and um, they they found him. And that's when a posse of the judge, the police chief or the sheriff and um, the coroner all went out to the river and they observed the scene and they kind of investigated things on the fly, figured out he'd been murdered, but couldn't find anything else, like not even the cause of death, not a murder weapon, anything like that. And it wasn't until his brother, D. Blair's brother, came back from his trip to, I think, the Tetons when he went to the site and he did all the investigating and I guess found the, the evidence that was later used to try to convict three boys, I want to say, uh, of that crime. But I don't think any of them were. They held him in jail for about a year, but... That case was uh, never solved. So I wanted that first case to be unsolved. And I wanted it to be old. That was part one of my mission for the episode. My mission in part two of the first episode was to find a more recent case, but one that nobody had heard of. Or not nobody, but most people who would listen had not heard of, but was still really good. And Don Kemp fit that bill. And by really good, I mean... By the time you're three quarters of the way into the story, you're like sucked in. You're fully immersed in what in the world is happening right now. And it, you hopefully are not easily distracted by anything that's going on in your listening life as you're out there at work or driving around. I want you, I don't want you to run into something if you're driving a car, but I want you to be fully engrossed in every word and every syllable of the podcast because it's written, it's not a conversational podcast like this episode is. It's crafted specifically, you know, every syllable, every, the editing is super hyper intense and the, the writing, um, is 
some episodes better than others, but it's constructed in such a way where it's supposed to be immersive. You can't miss a word or a sentence. And uh, picking that picking that second case, Don Kemp fell right into my lap. And even though it had been featured on Unsolved Mysteries National TV, it was still modern enough, but still mysterious enough. And I, I heard back from people who lived in Wyoming for a long time who said, I've been here my whole life and I've never heard of either of those two cases. And that was a home run. That's exactly what I was looking for. Here's some of part two from episode one. Now, there must have been a little snow on the ground, judging by contemporary media reports. But then again, I have a picture of Don Kemp's abandoned car. There's no snow on the ground in the picture. It hadn't snowed, at least not in the closest cities that we have records for, Laramie or Rollins. Police say in the episode that that's what happened to Don, but there was no blizzard in the area. Not even higher winds than usual that would account for blowing snow, whatever snow there was on the ground. Having said that, of course, Don could have died from exposure. Temperatures were darn cold for a good portion of that time, well below freezing. All of which makes the mystery even stranger as to why Don would have left many clothing items and a car full of camping gear inside his blazer on the side of the road. Whatever caused it, we do know Don's fate for certain. Four years after he went missing, Don Kemp's body was found, not far from an area that had been searched previously. In fact, some people believe that area was searched at the time, leading to a suspicion from some that Don's body hadn't been there when that area was searched. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. Good twist at the end. And also in that episode, there are two people that either see or hear from him alive, they think, after, he's, after his car was found abandoned on the side of the highway. One was somebody who said they saw him at the Abraham Lincoln exhibit, I believe, in um, Cheyenne. And uh, a friend of his also had a voicemail, maybe his sister, got a voicemail from him back on the East Coast after the time his car um, would have been found. So some reason to believe some people think that Don Kemp was still alive after he had disappeared, which is possible. And uh, where his body was again, where his body was found, they thought, some people thought that that area had already been searched. So uh, episode one uh, accomplished what I wanted to in that it was, it set the premise of the podcast. Here's what this is going to be about. Where possible, we're going to integrate history and um, other Wyoming lore, and we're going to explain disappearances, murders, things like that. Episode 2 was called Smoke into the Sky, released in August of 2019. Here's the first case from that episode. Improbably, our disappearance in this month's episode has a conclusion. Lynn Bush, who's described as a good friend, a wife, and a devoted mother, was killed. And we know this because in 2006, 16 years, after Lynn Bush disappeared, her killer was arrested at a truck stop in Rollins. They asked the man in custody who they could call to notify of his arrest, and the man responded, you can call my father. So at 10.45 p.m., David Bush's father received that phone call from police and met him at the police station. It turns out that Lynn's husband, David Bush, had told friends all along that he knew how to get away with a perfect murder. He'd once even taken a bag of peas out of the freezer, held them up to somebody, and said, quote, This is where I put her fingers. Unquote. 
So that was the story of uh, Lynn Bush, who many suspected for a long time was killed by her husband, and uh, that turned out to be the case, and he was later convicted of that. But it was one of those that took many years. I want to say uh, 20 years. So justice delayed, but not denied. And um, that was the... Was that the first one in that episode? I thought I opened up with the uh, the lander. The lander connection, which really stole the the episode. I got a lot of feedback on the... You ever see the movie, the Tom Hanks movie, Catch Me If You Can? This, this real-life story of this young, well, kid at first, and then young man who killed two girls, two high school classmates of his in, in Lander after a bonfire, after the homecoming football game, and then finished out his senior year um, without, you know, being caught or really suspected, and then was eventually arrested and um, and was more on police radar. But then he escapes a couple of times. He escapes from, I think, two detention facilities, one in Colorado, and and it's just, a, he actually ends up getting out before his death and dies of a heart attack in Utah, but dies of a free man, or at least a man out of prison. But he killed two uh, students' names, and I always like to remember uh, the victims' names because they were obviously real people. And I'm reminded, too, that these people are, uh, are, are, might have a relation, you know, to people who are listening. So I had made note of Vicki Mather and Deanne Smith were the two young high school girls who were murdered. One found, gosh, I think by her own sister, on a Girl Scout exhibition, or the, the bones and remains were eventually found that way. So here's a bit from that part of the second episode of the series. Following his confession on April 9th, 1969, Craig Sims was arrested and charged with both murders. It turned out that Sims had been on police radar at least a little since the beginning of the investigation. He'd been the one last seen with both girls at the bonfire, according to investigators, and he was also seen at the location where one of the bodies was eventually discovered at about 10.30 p.m. on that same night that the girls disappeared. In the months after the murders, Craig had more or less carried on his normal high school life. Among his recreational activities, Craig ran cross-country for the school, and he ran it very well. Two months after stabbing to death two of his female classmates, Craig Sims finished fifth at a state cross-country meet in Jackson Hole. The icing on the case for the Fremont County Sheriff's Office was the physical evidence. Police found blood on the back seat of the car that Sims had been driving at the time of the murders. And when the FBI matched the blood type to those of the victims, Sims was formally charged. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, and his uh, his appellate uh, procedures and his uh, the rest of his incarcerated life would have to do a lot with his mental condition. And it's hard to diagnose, but it does seem like Sims was one of these guys that had some kind of probably serious mental condition that probably contributed to what he did wrong in society, including killing two of his high school classmates. But this is uh, in the 80s. You know, it's a, a time when we're at our infancy in trying to understand. We still are in many ways, understanding the brain and how it relates to criminality. So, it, I mean, he was just it was a cog in the, the wheel. And yet justice still has to move forward and something has to happen to this guy. But he did eventually get out and died in Utah. Episode three of the podcast released in last uh, September, released last September was um, 
the Natural Born Killers episode opened up the the episode with a story that had a loose Wyoming connection to it. But two teenagers, a 19-year-old boy, and a, a man, and a 14-year-old girl who went on this murderous rampage. And if you've seen the Woody Harrelson movie, I'm not sure that you've seen the story that we try to portray of the depth and kind of intricacies of these two kids, really, uh, that were involved in that story. The writer Henry Miller once said, We create our fates every day that we live. But that hardly seems fair to Merle Collison. On Wednesday, January 29, 1958, a 37-year-old shoe salesman from Montana, Merle Collison, pulled his Buick off to the side of the road just after driving through Douglas, Wyoming. He just couldn't drive any longer that night. He needed to rest. To do so was not unusual for interstate travelers in the 1950s, and it certainly wasn't something that Merle Collison hadn't done himself hundreds of times before. No need to find a motel. All he required was a couple hours of shut-eye, and then the road-weary traveling salesman would be back on the highway. We can only hope he slept through his first and only meeting with a teenaged Charles Starkweather. The spree killer spotted Merle Collison's car, parked his own, a Packard, which was also stolen out of Nebraska, walked up to the driver's side window and fired six shots into it. Merle Collison never had a chance and hopefully never saw it coming. He couldn't have known about any of the murders, not the three from Clara's family who had been killed, nor the two teenagers whose only mistake had been to offer Charles and Clara a ride after their vehicle had become stuck in the snow for a second time, and not the murder of the unlucky farmer who was robbed only because he happened to live within walking distance of the second murder site. And there had been two more murders that same night, early the next morning to be more precise. Now, one of the interesting things we talk about in that episode is how culpable is the young girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, and she was only 14 at the time. I'm not sure how much in your right mind you can be when you're 19 years old, but um, Carol Ann was deemed to have had a lesser role in the events, in the murders especially. But there, as we point out in the episode, there are law enforcement who disagree with that assertion, and they've heard some testimony that she was just involved in some aspects of the crime as he was. Uh, in any event, the, the sentences were not uh, compensatory to that. He got, uh, oh boy, I can't remember now. Um, but Carol Ann was uh, released, if she was charged at all, I... I it's been a while for many of these episodes, obviously, but um, that one with a very loose Wyoming connection, I almost didn't do it because the connection really is just they were apprehended in Wyoming and they committed the one murder that was described in Wyoming, which eventually I thought was a Rodney Alcala episode coming up was the same thing where it's only got that loose connection, but the story is so interesting and in the case of uh, this case has uh, the pop culture reference with natural born killers and just thought many who had seen the movie might want the story behind the story there. Much more recent case in part two of that episode, Fauna Jackson. Fauna Jackson was a member of Groundwork USA. It's a group which, in its own words from their website, quote, pursues a future in which everyone's neighborhood environment is green, healthy, and resilient, while undoing legacies of poverty and racial discrimination and breaking the trend of widening disparity between communities that are enjoying a renaissance and communities that are experiencing disinvestment, neglect, and deepening poverty, unquote. 
She'd arrived in Wyoming about a week before she went missing and posted photos of the natural beauty around her on her social media sites. Wyoming is so beautiful, I can't wait to go to Yellowstone in two days, she posted along with a photo the day after she arrived. A Facebook post accompanying a photo of Fauna dated August 1st is captioned, Late last night we stopped in front of Yellowstone Lake, the largest alpine lake in the world. Alpine means it's more than 7,000 feet above sea level. Fauna was sent to Wyoming after displaying, in the words of Groundwork USA, quote, outstanding performance and leadership potential during her work with the organization earlier that summer in Ohio. She's very strong-minded, very smart, able to handle all the tasks we had for her over the course of the summer, trail building, invasive removal, restoration work. Those are the words of Alan Edwards, Groundwork Cincinnati chapter, to WCPO Television. Honestly, one of the best employees we've ever had. That's why she got to go. I don't know why, but I love that episode. That part of the episode is a very short story. Fauna Jackson was on that um, trail restoration project on sort of an environmental mission trip, but it's really like a character building. Uh, you go out to Wyoming for several weeks as part of a group, and she's from Illinois, I believe. And it's a very cool experience for a young person, teaches you all kinds of different skills, and just all around makes you a better human, human being. I'm a big fan of those, uh, those kind of efforts. But Fauna went missing while they were rebuilding the trail, and it turned out that she disappeared herself. She was trying to do we still don't know what in terms of running away or escaping. Or, but she was set to go back home to Illinois within a few days. In fact, she stayed in Wyoming as a result of her escape attempt, if you will, escape attempt. She stayed in the state longer than she would have if she'd have just flown home. So fascinating. Um, then again, it's a very young girl. And eventually, I didn't want to get too in-depth into the reasons or the motivations and because, as I think I say at the very end of the, the story, that part of the episode, nobody was hurt. Um, yeah, a lot of tax dollars and resources resources were expended. But given the expense, it came to the resolution that everybody usually hopes for. And it just happened to be, for one of a better term, sort of a hoax. But um, I, it, just a great story I, I, I found. And there was one newspaper article. I think it was a New York Times story that made that the research on that episode possible. And we cite that in the episode, but just kind of a footnote that we uh, included in the end of the, the other part of that episode. Where are we up to now? That was September. So in October of 2019, we had the Rock Springs episode. Two cases from Rock Springs, Wyoming. The first, what was the first one? Yeah, the first one was that Rodney Alcala connection, the very loose connection, the one Wyoming victim of serial killer Rodney Alcala. It is by area the largest county in the state and one of the largest counties in the country. And much of the landscape of Sweetwater County remains unchanged from when it was pioneered by Smith, Fitzpatrick, and others. The land has been bought and sold and developed in some places, but it remains sparse. Today, the ranch roads and dirt tracks that emanate from Highway 30 northeast of Granger seem an endless network of connected cul-de-sac of open space. There are dozens of those roads, and they're all unpaved. They exist only to connect water towers and small storage buildings and other farm and ranch structures to one another, and those roads are rarely used by anybody. 
In fact, most of that land is all but uninhabited year-round between the tiny town of Granger, population 139, and the Green River and Seatskadee National Wildlife Refuge in the state southwest. You'll be lucky to encounter a soul. But that's where Christine was, sitting on her motorcycle, smiling for the camera. In the photo, the Wyoming sky above her is blue and endless. The shirt is a shade of yellow that few years outside of 1977 would find fashionable, as is the style of her dark brown hair. And the string flip-flops are pink, but somehow don't seem out of place as she sits on top of a two-tone, blue-and-white, Kawasaki H1 motorcycle. The shirt and the hairstyle aside, Christine is gorgeous. And the word that comes to mind is basking. This is a photo of Christine basking in the sunshine of a beautiful Wyoming day. She's basking in adventure, too, having left Texas earlier in the summer to head for Montana along with her boyfriend, where they plan to pan for gold. She seems weightless, and maybe this is how Christine manages to pull off the cycle and sandals look. She's free. And she's pregnant. And she would meet Rodney Alcala while she was traveling across Wyoming, but after she'd kind of broken up with her boyfriend, so her boyfriend turned home, I think, and um, she was still going to proceed to Montana. And and she met Rodney Alcala at a bar, biker bar, I think, in Rock Springs. And there's a very ominous photo of uh, that particular victim who is on his bike, Rodney Alcala's bike, and it was probably just minutes before he killed her. And the only reason they link those two cases, that case to, to him after he was eventually caught, is police, after he was caught, they found all these pictures of all these women. And they posted them on the internet. If you know any of these women, please contact us because this guy, this serial killer that we just arrested, might have had something to do with their disappearance. And I think it was her sister that saw something. Actually, it was a son... It was it was her niece, it was a victim's niece, a nephew, the son of her sister, who said, "Mom, isn't this Christine?" And that's how she was linked to Rodney Alcala. Otherwise, she not only would the case not have been solved, but that particular part of Alcala's case, that victim wouldn't have been linked to him. They never would have found her remains because her remains were out there for uh, several decades. I want to say ten years at least before they were found. So. Again, a very loose connection, and I take pretty seriously. I want to, you know, keep this a Wyoming-centered themed podcast. But it was that photo pushed me over the edge to include it, and there has since been produced a pretty good wondery series on Alcala. I can't remember what it was called, but it's it's pretty good. It was like a B B B plus. Um, but it was it includes if you're interested in Alcala, I can't remember what it was called, but he was known as the game show killer because he appeared on the dating game uh in Los Angeles, which is um yeah, uh, obviously strange, but we are talking about the seventies and eighties the other uh the other case in that Rock Springs episode was David Lovely. David's mother and sister continued on their trip. they weren't sure what else to do. They constantly called the family's contact point on the East Coast to see if David had checked in. After a day or two when he hadn't, they filed a missing persons report. 
Without knowing what might have happened to David, or without knowing how far east on I-80 he'd gone before it did, the missing persons report was filed in Lincoln, Nebraska. But David was technically an adult, and if there's one thing police everywhere have experience with, it's the erratic behavior of 19-year-olds. Nobody came forward to report a motorist in distress along the highway. None of his possessions were found, like his wallet or keys or clothes, nothing. And most of all, there was no sign of David himself or his prized motorcycle. Who knows where David Lovely was, but the fact that he hadn't talked to his mother in a couple of days doesn't constitute a missing persons emergency in the eyes of police. Yeah, he'd turn up eventually, police thought. They always turn up, eventually. Uh, this one I'd love to see solved, it, unless his remains are found. It probably won't be at this point. But they found his bike and his motorcycle in such a strange place out by the Rock Springs Airport. And it just seems to me, speculation on my part, but it seems to me in that night he spent in Rock Springs as he was traveling across the country with his family, but separate from them because he was driving a bike and they were driving in a car. And um, so he would go ahead and they would catch up and they'd kind of, that's how you had to travel across the country before cell phones. And uh, many of these cases, you have to transport yourself into the time before constant communication, text, email, you know, uh, phone call with people. You had to stop at pay phones to coordinate. Where are you guys? I'll wait here for a couple hours. So that night he was going to spend in Rock Springs. Uh, David Lovely may have gotten into some trouble somehow with somebody. And I don't know why the bike was left out there and his some of his items were left out there. But that is one that uh, I know is still open in Sweetwater County in, in Rock Springs. And um, every time remains are found, I know police... Uh, kind of check that box to make sure it's not uh, Lovely's remains. Maybe maybe one day uh, we'll see resolution to that because coming up here we've got resolution to two cases I never thought would be solved, but that's coming up in a bit. The Rollins Rodeo Murders were their own standalone episode. I think this was the first time we did one full episode on just one case for those Rollins Rodeo Murders. Now, just to be clear, I have asked a few Ted Bundy experts about this connection to the state of Wyoming, whether or not there was one. And each of them told me there is no established connection between Ted Bundy and Wyoming. There isn't any evidence I'm aware of that he'd ever even been to the state. But we cannot say there is no connection. A lot of Ted Bundy's time in the early 70s, we don't know exactly where he was, not for the entirety of it anyway. And he did travel extensively across the American West during this time. And we don't know where Ted Bundy was at the time of the Rollins Rodeo murders in the summer of 1974. But we do know where he was six months later. In January of 1975, Ted Bundy killed Carolyn Campbell near Aspen, Colorado. It was after being arrested for this crime that he would famously jump out of the window of a courthouse to escape. While it was speculated in a few press reports at the time that Bundy and an accomplice might have been hitchhiking to Wyoming following his escape, those reports were from before he was found, and we now know these reports were not true. And there is nothing in the unredacted portion of the FBI file of Ted Bundy's, which was released several years ago, that indicates any connection between Ted Bundy and Wyoming, let alone that he'd been responsible for any murders in the state. Now, I'm one who understands the evils of Ted Bundy as much as anyone. 
and being one of America's more romanticized serial killers, by the way, his savagery is often forgotten or just not known. It somehow dissolves amidst his charisma and the ethos now of his legend, for want of a better word. But Ted Bundy was a more brutal killer than most people realize. In fact, I wonder if he would be so mythologized if everyone could see photos of the savagery of his murders. If they could view video, if it existed, of what Ted Bundy did to the bodies of the women he killed. And then what he would return to do to their bodies again and again for days and for weeks after they were dead. These are aspects of Ted Bundy that aren't discussed and that seem to evaporate when we see old video of him being interviewed or representing himself in his trial. Ted Bundy was about as bad as they get. But what about Ted Bundy as the Rollins rodeo murderer? So I told you, I think I told you about the feedback I got from including Bundy because there was a theory um, that he might have been the Rollins rodeo murderer. And strictly speaking, I think you could make the timeline work. And I do believe that Bundy killed more, possibly many more women than he remembered or that he was uh, connected to. But I don't think Rollins was it. I think it is somebody else who's probably yet uncaught. Because they happened at such a close time to one another. And then they stopped. So uh, a pattern we see, and again, that case I just referenced, it's coming up in a later episode that we just did a couple of months ago. There are many, many, too many of these capable suspects in an area. And as I've said again before, it lacks imagination to assign something like Rollins to Ted Bundy because he was all over the news the following year when he was finally caught. Ted Bundy, I maintain, would stand out in Rollins, Wyoming today uh, to say nothing of in the 70s and 80s. He would be extremely recognizable, I think, He's not the Wyoming type, if you will. And I just don't believe that there... I mean, there is no evidence. There's no connection that Bundy has ever been to Wyoming, although I'm sure he has. Kind of have to, to drive across the West. But um, it's possible that Ted Bundy's your Rollins rodeo murderer. But one of the themes of the last couple of episodes, as we got into the Great Basin serial killer and then the other solved cases that we'll get to, again, that I just referenced, is there are multiple people, especially when you're talking about people who travel in from out of state. Um, it doesn't take a lot. You know, 10 guys who are serial killers over 5 to 10 years can um, not only kill a lot of people, unfortunately, but also confuse things a great deal because we have a natural tendency to link things together. And if we're trying to link things to the wrong suspects, then we're just, you know, allowing the, the real guy to get away. So... As frustrating as it is to not have that answer, you know, don't don't force the link is sort of what I remind myself when it comes to all of these serial killer cases. The uh, December episode then was a box of bones. Came out day after Christmas last year. On this month's episode, we uh, we talked about, let's see, I think the first one we did was Shelley Wiley in that episode. 
Shelley Wiley was a 22-year-old student at the University of Wyoming and living in Laramie in 1985. A graduate of Laramie High School in 1981, Shelley was working her way through school as a waitress at a hotel restaurant complex just a block away from her apartment. And Shelley's family, her parents, two brothers, and a sister, all lived in Laramie as well. Shelley didn't have any enemies, no jealous boyfriends or angry exes, according to her friends. But at 5.24 a.m. on Sunday, October 20th, 1985, Fire crews responded to Shelley's apartment building. After containing the blaze, Shelley was found dead inside the living room of her apartment unit. But the fire hadn't killed her, and that she had been instead murdered by other means was evident right away. In fact, Shelley's wounds were such that the responding firefighters knew, even while they were still fighting the fire, that something else, someone else, had killed Shelley. They could see the blood, for one thing. Shelley Wiley had been sexually assaulted, struck in the head, stabbed 11 times with a paring knife, doused with an accelerant of some kind, and her body set on fire. Due to the damage caused by the flames, it wasn't clear at the autopsy at which point in this horrific ordeal Shelley would have died. Police believed early on that something might have happened to Shelley outside of her apartment first. Drag marks were found 40 feet away, leading to her front door. A single unidentified fingerprint from Shelley's apartment door was sent to the state crime lab for analysis. A neighbor told police she'd heard screams coming from Shelley's unit about 15 minutes before the fire was set. It was also determined that an undisclosed amount of money was missing. Shelley lived in the apartment with a female roommate, who'd thankfully been away for that weekend. It was the first murder in Laramie in nearly six years. You know what comes to mind about that episode? Here's a behind-the-scenes note for you on that one. When it comes to Shelley Wiley, I got an email um, from a law enforcement investigator, and the email was uh, very nice. So really enjoyed the episode. But they said, I want to let you know that you got some things wrong about the Shelley Wiley case, but we can't tell you what they are because it's an open investigation still which I thought was very interesting. And it makes sense. If the investigation is open, it's at law enforcement's discretion as to whether or not they want to share whatever's in the case file. So makes you wonder what I got wrong and why that might be, you know, why that might be um, pertinent. But I, I certainly within the realm of possibility that we may make mistakes in research. And these episodes are pretty intensely researched, but we screwed one, one of the, the more egregious errors I made in the last year was from that episode. It was uh, a woman of similar age who uh, disappeared. And I think I said that she had not been found and she had been. And that was, I think, why the, uh, the investigator reached out to me in the first place. And we pulled that audio from the episode. It was about 20 seconds. It wasn't much. But after that, we immediately uh, corrected the, the error because errors do happen. It is, unfortunately, a part of this process. I hate when they happen. It's the worst feeling in the world, and so it drives you to research even more thoroughly and make sure that you get everything right, but they are going to happen sometimes. But it was a great uh, feedback in, from that particular investigator because he said, first of all, I love the show and uh, really entertaining, enjoyed the episode, but I got, I mean, there's some Shelly Wiley stuff in there that's just incorrect, and I can't tell you what it is. So that's interesting, because I can't really think of what might be 
from the rest of what's in there, what might be incorrect, but I wouldn't know either. So, um, I, 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 we have a pretty high accuracy rate, very high accuracy rate when it comes to the facts and, um, the, the stuff that's presented in the podcast, it's checked very vetted, very thoroughly, but it, nothing is perfect. And that's an example of something where I screwed up and we had to make a small correction and omit some of the audio. Anyway, other uh, part of that episode was Box of Bones. The Box of Bones, found in Thermopolis, had once been Joseph Mulvaney, who'd spent all of his childhood in rural Illinois. And an eventful childhood it was. In 1939, when he was 18, Joseph was trapped following a cave-in on a hillside by rock and mud. It was loosened after a rainstorm. He nearly died and would have, but for his two classmates who dug Joseph out of rock and rubble for nearly an hour to free him, and then dragged him unconscious from the hillside and rode his badly injured body back to safety. In 1941, when he was 20, enlisted in the National Guard. Of course, just in time for the United States' involvement in World War II, following the Japanese attack on Hawaii at the end of that same year. So he spent the first six months overseas in Australia before being hospitalized there with an undisclosed stomach ailment. Near the end of the war in June 1945, Joseph had become a sergeant as a technician and was serving in the Pacific Theater when his mother, Catherine, passed away in the sanitarium where she'd been a patient for some time. She was 50 years old. Joseph was 24 then. After the end of the war, Joseph received a discharge from the Army and returned home. The woman he chose to marry killed him 15 years later. At least that's what Shelley Statler, Joseph's granddaughter, thinks happened. Shelley says her grandmother and her then 16-year-old uncle conspired to shoot Joseph J. Mulvaney, and that's what they did in 1960, before burying his body on family property, only to resurrect the remains and stuff them away in that trunk. The trunk of bones that were put out for yard sale 20 years later and that were discovered in Wyoming for the first time 10 years after that. More than 30 years after his death, Joseph's remains had somehow traveled from Illinois to Oklahoma to Wyoming in a box. So I know that this is a man and I I try to never forget that and I try to in the episode tell you his story. But it was just so fascinating that how did this guy in in his remains end up in a box in Thermopolis, Wyoming was such a fun and it turned out to be kind of a detailed story but not extremely complicated but um yeah very uh to go back and do the research on this this guy Mulvaney one of the things I remember about him is he saved the life of one of his kids it just makes you reflect on your own not his kids, one of his uh, one of his friends when they were in high school. He saved a high school friend from drowning, and he made the local paper back east for doing that. But it makes you wonder about your own existence. At some point, you're going to be remembered for something, you know. And this guy is remembered for being a box of bones in uh, Thermopolis, which is not. Yeah, you know, he was. He served in the war. There's a lot to him. He was married. I, I believe he did have kids. Kind of, you know, your your average. Um, notable in some ways American life but what is extremely notable eventually about Joseph Mulvaney is he ends up in a box as bones in Thermopolis so just uh, I don't know fun is the right word but a very interesting story compelling story then uh, the following 
month, January, we came out with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women episode, which we called Indigenous. Some of the problem of violence against Native women and children lies at the feet of the Native population and the Native communities across the country themselves. But much of the problem with the criminal justice system through which these crimes against women and children are supposed to be remedied, that problem lies at the feet of an American government which neither knows how to solve the problem nor has ever shown much interest in wanting to do so. The issue is thorny, and when they're being honest, is seen as largely unresolvable by all parties involved. And maybe it is, maybe it can't ever be solved. But maybe someday it can. And for all the time between now and then, the tribes themselves can and should give their families and children the best access possible to services and organizations that are available in even the poorest non-native communities in the rest of the country. Boys and girls clubs, mentoring programs, teams, organizations, so on. And just as is the case in the rest of America, native children will benefit from exposure to adults who are in a position to help them teachers, doctors, lawyers, family development professionals, and they need to see it for themselves, around them, in and of who they interact with every day. They need to see something that they want to become. But the federal government also needs to wrest control to tribes across the country. The same can be said for some state governments as well. Give these tribes the ability to enact their own priorities, enforce their own laws over their own people. Can you imagine your local courthouse not having jurisdiction over crimes committed in the community? Any tribe on any reservation can be sovereign or not, but they can't be both. So this one is still unlike any other episode in the podcast. It is as soapboxy as I'll ever get with it. It is as, if you want to say political, but, you know, issue-oriented as I'll ever get with it. But it is something that I carry with me as a life experience from having lived in Wyoming. Like many Americans, I had no previous uh, interaction with Native populations. But being in Fremont County, you can't help but get to know the Native population. And I'll never forget my visits to the Wind River Indian Reservation. And uh, in one capacity, an official visit where I was given a tour of... Um, one side of the res to schools and to uh, different parts of their life, different parts of their infrastructure and their government. And it gave me a sense of a lot of things that I've never left, uh, that I've never forgotten. And there is also um, the issue of MMIW when it comes to the female, especially population of Native Americans and how they disappear more frequently, how their cases are never solved. And that episode, uh, by nature, sort of had to be the way it was in order to tell the story um, in any way that that mattered. Because um, the word that comes to mind for that issue, for that overall interaction between Native and non-Native peoples, and then the the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women overall in Canada and the U.S., the word that comes to mind to me is gritty. It is not clean. It is, uh, it, it's harsh. It's got jagged edges to it. 
And I had the choice of doing the episode or not doing the episode. And then if I'm going to do the episode, I how do I go about it? Can it be just pastel and softballs? Or are we actually going to talk about this for just a minute? And I decided since I'm doing the episode, we're going to get into a little bit of uncomfortable territory for all of us. And part of how you know that you've experienced something that is, is meaningful to you is that it is uncomfortable to you. And there are parts of that episode that should be uncomfortable to the white population in Wyoming. There are some parts of the episode that should be revealing and uncomfortable to the native population as well. There's a lot going on there. And as best I could, as best I could, um, it could probably be done better. But as best I could in 30 minutes, that's what that episode was. And when I released it, I was waiting. I was waiting for it to come. I was ready. Had the flak jacket on. But the reception to that episode, so far as I'm aware, was excellent. And that was heartening to me. Not because that episode made a difference, quote unquote, though I hope some people listen to it and they start thinking about some of those issues, but because it told me that it was presented well, that it accomplished what it was supposed to, that it was universally sort of encompassing of everything that I was trying to do there. From talking about the history of Sacagawea on up, and the episode taken in a whole, I've actually had people tell me, is not only the best podcast episode of the series, which you may or may not agree with, but I've had people tell me that's the best work you've ever done in one single episode in all of my four or five podcast projects, which is obviously good feedback to hear too. You'll like to, when you're taking on that kind of a gorilla of a subject, I guess that's, um, I guess that's my mentality is if I'm going to do it, I'd rather not do it than do it in a way that is disingenuous to some of the harsh realities of uh, surrounding the entire issue. And I, that by far and away the best researched episode that we've done for this podcast series, because you have to go through treaties, you have to go through the history of native populations in this country and how many jurisdictions there are and the crime rates and the, the holes in the data. They're just, the information isn't there because some of these tribal lands are black holes when it comes to outside information or information getting to the outside. Anyway, um, when I hear feedback like that, I don't like that episode. I don't like, it, it doesn't feel like the rest of the series does when you get to the end of the episode, but that's the point. That's why we made it. That's why we released it. Uh, that The entire episode obviously was... Uh, devoted to that. And it was in the back of my mind after that, like a serious, heavy episode like that, that we had to get to the one that people have been waiting for after that, just to appease the fans and kind of get back to the basics and the roots of the podcast. And that is the Vihar bombing. Being parked on the street directly in front of the home wasn't ideal, and neither was leaving the car's motor on, but that couldn't be helped. The man exited the car careful to shut the driver's side door but not to slam it, and proceeded to the trunk of the vehicle. This was the tricky part, he knew. If something was going to go wrong, if he was going to get caught, it would be right then. The man popped the trunk to reveal his homemade bomb. 
The explosive device was abrasive and crude, consisting of little more than 30 sticks of dynamite basically taped together, and it was rather large, big enough where he'd need to carry it with both hands. The man had decided that the open trunk of his car in the pitch dark might not be seen for a couple of minutes, but the sound of his trunk slamming shut could draw a curious, insomniatic glance at the window of neighboring homes. That he couldn't afford. He couldn't afford to be seen. At least not yet. Then again, while his open trunk would be silent to the street for the few minutes he would need to carry out his plan, the open trunk would almost certainly draw to a stop any police car that might happen to pass through the area on patrol, at which point the officer would exit his vehicle, have a look around with a flashlight, and almost certainly find him crouched behind a bush on the lawyer's property alongside his large homemade bomb. Either way, for the next few minutes, he was going to be exposed, and that's all there was to it. The man grabbed his deadly creation from the trunk with both hands. Leaving his car's trunk popped open, he proceeded, silently as he could, along the side of the home to the lawyer's backyard. If he'd been seen at this point, there was still time to retreat. So there, in the Vihar's small backyard, the man stopped and squatted and looked around hard and carefully at all the other homes on the streets and all the other windows he could see. And then back to the streets. For the next two or three minutes, the man was still, surveying who might have seen him, who might be watching him now. And then, after a few moments, satisfied he'd evaded detection by anybody, he extracted a lighter from his pants pocket. The bomb with 30 sticks of dynamite was powerful enough almost certainly to level the building from where it sat in the backyard. But here, a stroke of luck. The basement window had moved inward as the man had lightly pressed on it, and the window was large enough to gain entry for the device. The man positioned his bomb aside the window, opened the window with his left hand, and while lighting the fuse with his right, pushed the bomb inside, and then ran. Sprinting back around the home to the rear of the vehicle, the man slammed down the trunk, nearly threw himself into the driver's seat, and peeled off into the night. He was making a lot of noise now, enough noise to have woken up even the soundest sleeper on the block, but the noise didn't matter anymore, and the 60-second fuse on the bomb burned down. What I found most fascinating about that case, aside from, there, there is a movie element to it where it's, it's in Wyoming, the Wild West, it's a bombing, which is rare, and those are terrifying, and... It's kind of a, a violent crime of its own category when it comes to bombings. But I, I'm still fascinated by the fact that the, one of the principal actor, really, I mean, not the mastermind, but the principal actor of that case is free and is still living in Wyoming, having been involved in all the criminal activity that was described in the episode, uh, living very quietly in a very, very rural part of Wyoming. I think the Star Tribune tracked him down several years ago and May have even interviewed him. That uh, it's just fast, just a cherry on top of of uh, the episode itself for the um, the sense of um, one final twist, I guess, in the story. Um, okay, that brought us back to April. We're up to now, and we got to the Lisa Marie Kimmel case, Little Miss. Months turn into years, which turned into ten years. 
and Lisa Marie Kimmel became and remained for some time the only active unsolved homicide in Natrona County. And if the abduction had taken place a couple of years later than 1988, there's a very good chance this case would have forever remained unsolved because a few years after 1988, Dale Wayne Eaton would have been aware of DNA. But back then, like most people, Eaton had never heard of it, which is what eventually led to an answer in Lisa's case. Despite her body having been thrown off a bridge into a river, foreign hairs and biological samples had been recovered off of Lisa's body. And 14 years after Lisa Marie Kimmel and her vehicle vanished into nothing on the road between Denver and Montana, authorities got a hit on the DNA sample. That led investigators to the Manita property where Dale Wayne Eaton had once lived, and at the end of July 2002, state and federal authorities descended on the roadside township of Manita and began a full-on excavation of the property where Eaton had been staying when Kimmel disappeared 14 years earlier. Police found the black sports car buried in the backyard. It was confirmed to be leases by the car's vanity license plates. L-I-L. M-I-S-S. Little Miss. So, Dale Wayne Eaton, first time we meet him in this podcast series. I cover Eaton in the other series I've produced, Frozen Truth, which is still available. It covers one of the cases is the Amy Robechtel disappearance from Lander. Uh, and he later eventually became a suspect, pretty good suspect for, for that disappearance as well. The Little Miss case I'll never forget because of uh, she was so young. Um, the story I tell in that episode is just such a fate um, where she is pulled over on her way uh, for speeding on her way up from Colorado. She's going to Montana to visit her boyfriend and she has to drive through Wyoming. And she is pulled, she is pulled over for speeding by this police officer who by all rights could have taken her in and saved her life. Obviously, he would have no way of knowing that, but had Lisa Marie Kimmel had one of the worst days of her life to that point and been arrested and it would have been so against her character and she would have been embarrassed and humiliated and she would have been out a bunch of money, but she would be alive and, and nobody would have any way of knowing what her fate was going to be when she got past Casper and encountered Dale Wayne Eaton in whatever way. We still don't know for sure the story behind how he abducted Lisa and how he got her in the car specifically where, but, um, it's a horrible case because uh, I've been many of you too have been to that um, on that highway to that little town. It's not even a town on the side of the road. A population of like four or five people, literally, of Manita, Wyoming, where she was being kept. And when I realized when I was there, and I realized um, what had happened just feet off of the road, it was profoundly disturbing to me. She was being held captive there as a prisoner. Uh, with the worst imaginable things happening to her and uh, unsure of her fate at, at the end of it, but she was eventually driven out and she was uh, killed. So she would have been unsure of her fate, I mean to say, but um, she she would not survive that five days of torture. Just awful. And to know how many thousands of people must have driven by that trailer, that camper, not knowing what was happening inside and how many police maybe even were looking for her on that road. Uh, Dale Wayne Eaton comes up again, though. He is uh, becomes a character, if you will, in the podcast series because we move on from Eaton to the Great Basin serial killer, and there are a lot of people who believe that Eaton is involved in other cases as well. 
Dale Wayne Eaton by way of explanation for what he had done. Told police he had cancer or some other sort of life-threatening disease, and that he wanted to die, but that he didn't have the guts to do it himself. In other words, suicide by stranger. But FBI investigators disagree. They say it's hard to imagine how such a brazen abduction attempt could have possibly been Eaton's first such incident. In fact, they believe Eaton had done it several times before, maybe even dozens of times before, and that the victims of those abductions never lived to tell their story. Shannon Breeden, who later testified about her ordeal in court, believes that had she not acted as she had and forced a physical confrontation with Eaton, that she and her husband and son would have died at the end of that dirt road off I-80. And it's hard to imagine otherwise. It also gives us the rarest insight that we have into a potential serial killer. The victim who escapes. If federal authorities are correct, and Dale Wayne Eaton is indeed responsible for other unsolved murders, then Shannon Breeden was able to give authorities and the rest of us a play-by-play account of a serial killer and an insight into his victim's last moments alive. If you're wondering what I think about Eaton, and you might be because of uh, the current uh, legal situation, uh, which I'll talk about just briefly, I'm one to believe he's responsible for certainly other murders than Lisa Marie Kimmel. I have specific cases in mind, but I, I, that would be speculation on my part. I won't share them. Um, there, there are three I'm thinking of, possibly a fourth. And you could probably guess, um, if you're familiar with some of the, uh, we'll say local Fremont County linked cases, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, his, his victim count could be as high as nine or 10 in other States as well. Um, in, in terms of the death penalty, I mean, that is a thorny political issue and there's no point in, in me getting, uh, too involved in that, but uh, it, it, for me, the death penalty, along with the rest of what our criminal justice system does, it, it, we have to decide what we want from it. And we haven't done that collectively as a society, by which I mean, is our justice system to reform? Is it to make people better and then release them? Is it to keep them away from the rest of us? Or is it to punish them? Eye for an eye, uh, Hammurabian um, justice, if you will. And I think we want it to do all three. And I think because we want it to do a little bit of all three, we fall short in some of the areas. We don't reform as well as we could. And sometimes we punish when we shouldn't, innocent people. And sometimes people, you might think we punish too harshly. And capital punishment is one of those examples of uh, a, a part of the justice system that obviously people have a problem with. Um, just for, just for, my two cents, and they're worth that if that. Um, uh, but if if ever anyone deserved it, um, I'm going to sleep fine if the day ever comes when Dale Wayne Eaton is executed. I'm not sure if it will because he's 74, I believe, and in not great health. I'm not sure what physical health he's in, but his mental state has been called into question for many years. And it's funny, I hear from people who, who have met him. Um, I hear from prison guards who listen to the podcast, former prison guards, who once worked in Rollins. And, uh, yeah, they, they say, I, I checked him in or I booked him in or I used to serve him lunch or whatever, which is Wyoming is, a, is one of my favorite small towns. It's amazing what I hear about from you guys through the podcast. But, 
Dale Wayne Eaton as the Great Basin serial killer. I think he could be responsible for some of those murders that we talk about here in this episode. Um, did we play that clip or not? Do, do, do. Yeah, we just did. Um, but I do think there are others. And that segues beautifully into the solved case. Very exciting. Um, just out of the blue, out of nowhere, in June of this year, two months ago, Bitter Creek Betty and Sheridan's Jane Doe, two cases that we knew were linked because police had made that public that the DNA matched, but they didn't know whose DNA it was. So they knew somebody was responsible for both of these cases, but they remained unsolved until just a couple of months ago. And today we know a lot more about DNA. We know, for example, a direct DNA match is far more accurate than 97.5%. Theoretically, it is possible for somebody else other than your identical twin to have your exact same DNA. But the odds of that are astronomical. They are so large and so long that I can't express the number in a way that you would comprehend. The odds of someone other than your identical twin having your exact genetic combination are one, and one followed by 63 zeros. It's an unfathomable number. And this is why DNA evidence is so strong in criminal cases, and we don't even fully understand human genetics entirely yet. We're still learning about the basic building blocks of ourselves and of our life and every known living thing. And we're still learning about how that science can be better used to catch criminals and perhaps one day even practically prevent most violent crime from happening in the first place, using nothing but our understanding of genetics. But 30 years ago, just about nobody outside of lawyers and law enforcement, well, and bear biologists, even knew what DNA was, and that included most criminals. Now here's this guy in Iowa who is presumed innocent, and I, as I state in the podcast, that is something I take very seriously, speaking of the justice system, but especially when reporting. But assuming he's responsible for what he did for a moment, he must have thought he's gotten away with these murders. Three of them, actually, because it was the one down south, I can't remember what state was it, Georgia, that uh, linked him to the two in Wyoming. And he was an over-the-road truck driver, not to indict at all truck drivers or some of my favorite people. Um, I have great respect for what they do, and they're essential. We talk about essential workers. Truck drivers are on that list. But in the 70s and 80s, interstate trucking provided um, uh, an ideal circumstance for those among us who have those propensities to harm people in that way. And the FBI has since recognized this, and you see it. And I think there are many over-the-road truck drivers from that period of time who may yet be caught because of DNA. I don't know, but there are probably several more, certainly several more, who've gotten away with this crime. Um, this guy, though, thought he got away with it until last month. Unbelievable. And we talk about familial DNA, which is uh, something that's very interesting, the true crime space and investigative uh, tool that's come up over the last five years. So I liked that we got to kind of wrap up the year as we got close to the 12th episode with some great news. And I never... I'll freely admit, I never thought those two cases would ever be solved, even though they had the DNA. And I should know better, because as technology advances, they're coming up with ways, different ways to link the DNA, and they're going to be able to get DNA off of the smaller and smaller, more minute, microscopic samples. 
So if there is physical evidence in a case, we, we should not give up hope on any of these cases which are unsolved, that um, they can't be. So that brings us up to the very last episode in July of this year. Ivan Schaefer. What happened to Ivan Schaefer? For those who were following the story back in Fremont County, it would take a few more elk seasons to stir up rekindled interest in the missing hunter's disappearance. And in the fall of 1998, three years after Ivan Schaefer had gone missing, another hunter riding on horseback found a bone fragment. Specifically, his horse found it when the horse kicked up a strange object which caught the man's eye. Think about that. After an eight-day full-scale search for Ivan three years before, covering who knows how much grounds by land and air, all without finding a single thing, this horse just happens to step right on to what could be the first evidence of the missing hunter in three years since he disappeared. The bone was palm-sized and found about four miles from where Schaefer had been last seen. The piece was determined to be a skull fragment and was sent off to the state lab for further analysis. Meanwhile, cadaver dogs were brought into the scene and they indicated to a pile of logs, a large pile of logs, which investigators planned to return to later when the weather cleared. And it took a couple of weeks for the weather to clear. In that part of Wyoming, oftentimes the first snowfall of the season will be the last time you're able to search an area like that. But authorities did find a window to allow for the second significant search for Ivan Schaefer. And this time the epicenter was that log jam where the dogs had hit. Police cleared that log jam and they dug to the stream bottom. They searched for days, but again, no trace of the missing hunter was found. No other bones, no clothing, nothing. But there would finally be one small answer in the case. It took quite a while. Later in the summer, finally, in July 1999, State Lab DNA tests confirmed that that bone fragment found by the horse on that previous fall afternoon was indeed a piece of the skull of Ivan Schaefer, confirming he had died in that remote part of the National Forest. So it seems to me like he was shot, and he may have been accidentally shot during the hunting trip. Um, and you ask yourself, what do you do if you're a hunter and you realize you have accidentally shot somebody? Not being a hunter, it's hard to put myself in that situation, but... Um, I don't know, I want to think you don't have to be a hunter. You call police, and uh, it's an accident, and hopefully nothing bad happens to you. But this man is dead, and if it were a hunting accident that was then covered up, you know, um, police sort of have had that suspicion since the very beginning. And they're, they're also suspicious of the two hunting companions that were on the trip with him as well. I think they've more or less cleared those guys, and they've said a couple of times, on the record that they had nothing to do with uh, the disappearance. But um, it does seem like one of those where someone probably knows something. And uh, you could say this for a lot of these unsolved cases. I wonder how people, you know, you, you hear the, the saying, how did people live with themselves? But then again, people are capable, I think, of a great degree of compartmentalization. You know, some people it eats alive. And I think it's hard on anybody who commits a crime like that. But some people are amazingly adept at hiding it from themselves, almost. So hopefully that's another Ivan Schaefer where even though it's quite old now, um, maybe someone saw something, maybe someone can come forward and, and assist in that one too. We included the contact information 
uh, in the post at county10.com there, or it's in the uh, the episode, I think, in the audio episode anyway. Uh, that brings us up to speed. That brings us up to where we're at currently. I would guess that we will produce an episode for September. If we do not, we because we have some other plans, guys. We have some stuff going on behind the scenes that we'll be working on too, which have to do with the show and the brand. But um, if we're not back in September, we'll be back in October. But we will continue to push out the Patreon content regardless. In the meantime, I'm going to go right now. We're going to record the uh, the second part of this where I'm just going to talk more generally about the podcast and um, not necessarily the specific cases, but uh, as just a thank you for, uh, in fact, maybe what I'll do is I'll put up a, I'll put up a post so that you Patreon people can ask questions if you want. Maybe I'll wait 24 hours and let you guys respond to that. So um, that's what we'll do. In case there are any specific questions that you want to ask, you can join our Patreon community and you can listen to that bonus content. And I'm very much looking forward to bringing you guys another year of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. I can't express in words, you know, from the bottom of my creative soul, thank you for um, telling people about it, being so passionate about it. The ratings and the reviews have been so positive. Even the negative ones are positive. Um it's it's been unbelievable. It, it really has been something very cool. It's all just come together very well. So, and until next time, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.